0: I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water.
1: It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and, and keep, keep moving forward. forward. How much you can take
0: and, and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align A Podcast. Welcome back
1: to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander and today's fabulous episode. got to have one of my favorite doctors on the globe, Dr. Alan Christensen. Uh, he is a New York Times best-selling author of Adrenal Reset, recently came out with the Metabolism Reset, and um, he's tremendous. He's like, well-versed in the realms of philosophy and Ayurveda and Western medicine and just creates a really beautiful bridge between all those different perspectives. So we get into some of those bits in this conversation. I hope you guys really enjoy it. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in to the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge, five simple videos breaking down fundamental movements that I think everybody needs to have in their daily movement practice. So you can jump on there, alignpodcast.com. I am here in Costa Rica finishing up yoga teacher training. I am recording this from inside a you can hear the cicadas in the background perhaps they're like crazy crazy loud i'm inside this little jungle hut as i'm recording this guy and heading back getting on a plane to la tomorrow And that's probably all the details you need about that. Um, Thank you so much to Cure Nutrition for supporting this podcast. I really dig those guys. They have a fantastic CBD company where they integrate uh, the power of CBD into various different food items that I really love. They also have oils and all all the standard typical CBD items, but um, I especially like when they infuse them into spices. They have like garlic herb spice and they got these peanut butter cookie dough bars they're just they're really good um they're affordable and you can make it more affordable by using the line code so go to curenutrition.com, use the line code and get 10 percent off on your purchase um i think we're probably good i really appreciate you guys leaving reviews on itunes um and telling your friends going all those things hope you love this conversation here we go back to the show
0: online podcast.
1: What's this ayurvedic concept you're referring to?
0: Well, they talk we always hear about, you know, our bodies are made of food and we are what we eat and all that. So in right. ayurveda the idea was that that was valid, that was true, but then also how the the subtle body, the emotional sphere, the mind that we were fed via our impressions. And you can take in various levels of quality impressions. And one pitfall about, you know, all the all the disconnect, all the attention issues that we have, the depression in the modern world, is the fact that we're only consuming junk impressions and the whole thing about, yeah, nature bathing. So mm. some kinds of impressions have this inherent level of life force or prana that we can take in and we can utilize. Other impressions may feed us like the basic chemicals, the basic things, like they, they stimulate us, but they're lacking that deeper level of nourishment. So that was the concept of therapy, you, if you feed the subtle body through your impressions.
1: Mm. I just did a, uh, I've talked about it on here a lot, so I don't want to get into it too much, but I just did a Vipassana meditation. Uh-huh. You, have you ever done one of those? Mm-hmm. You have. Yeah. Have you done one or multiple or what's your experience uh, with it?
0: One, one 10 day and then some regular practice. Great. I did a fair amount of time with, with Shingon Buddhism. That was the longest path that I went into specifically, but yeah, powerful stuff.
1: Yeah. And so one of the things that um, they were talking about in that, was that upon looking out it's like we start to lose that prana, or that chi and as you go in you start to gather and so you create that from the inside and then every time you're picking up your cell phone or you know some image it's they describe it and you take this take it or leave it they describe it as literally it's like you're pouring energy out of your eyes mm. in a sense and so having cultivating a really strong practice of, of of building 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 it's something that we're fairly it's like seems fairly devoid of in our culture yeah yeah. Do you have anything like that in your, your life? Like a cultivation? Obviously, Vipassana.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I spend a lot of time outdoors. Uh, we've got a pretty cool spot. If you're in Phoenix, drop by sometime. we yeah, in the mountain preserve. So when I'm working, I'm just surrounded and I'm always just getting outside and goofing around the rocks and stuff. And yeah. I've had times where I've had long, detailed, ritualized practices. And as things have evolved, I do better when it's always paired with physical movement. So I'll, yeah. I'll be walking, I'll be on the unicycle on a trail or you know doing whatever, scrambling and, and then doing things mentally along with that. But as of such, it's the idea of a dedicated practice of stillness that's fallen by the wayside for me. Hmm. I, I've got so much physical nice stillness hear. with my mental work, right. with writing and reading and training the docs and stuff, that you know I've got X number of hours in the day and... I completely resonate with all the benefits, but it's just honestly not part of my life. I'm always moving. and I'm always outdoors. And-
1: yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, like I find, and that's and that's a level of even the vipassana meditation where you go. I think if you do like four ten day sits, you can go and do the the, the moving meditation one. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like next level meditation. Is can you start to integrate that practice when you are in dark and in silence and
0: well, and there was
1: as you're making your eggs. There
0: was one, there was one transition that happened and it was very deep in Shingon Buddhism. And we would do these, honest um, Samadhi was this one meditative practice and it was ridiculously ritualized. I mean, you were using, it was kind of fasting, so you'd use incense and you'd have, uh, and not at all like the Western version of incense, but you've got this pot of ash. And the lineage was that Each time you would burn incense, you would make an indentation in this little pot of ash. You'd line this with just pure sandalwood and aloes wood, and you would burn that. Mm. And when it burned, it was so pure, almost nothing was left. Like just microscopic amounts of residue was left. But this ash was all the residue from your teacher's practice. So that was the lineage. They would give you this starter stuff, and then you would build upon that. And it was neat, but there was so many intricacies of the visualization, the, the mudra, the mantra, the, the, the posturing and super, super complex. And the difficulty for me was that, um, yes, wrapping your mind up in all this intricacy would completely get it out of your way, no doubt about that. But when I was really into that, I was also really hardcore into climbing. And the thing that hit me was that being on vertical rock, there was like a lot of nuance and intricacy, but it wasn't arbitrary.
1: Right. <laughs> Yeah,
0: There were reasons behind it. And if I didn't do them right, I was going to die. So it was...
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just
0: seemed much more tangible as far as you do these things in certain reasons, you know, and here's why.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, we need... uh, I think for a lot of us, we need to have some kind of isolated practice to start to train the mind to get to that point where you can be... Have you heard... Oh, what is it? You start off unconsciously incompetent Mm -hmm. that's like the worst place to be yeah you know that's where that's where i'm sure (laughs) in all sorts of directions and then from there you 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 build upon that you realize well damn you become conscious that oh i'm pretty incompetent
0: And that's funny too. Cause it seems like on. it seems like your perception of your ability plummets <laughs> right. when you get into something because now you know what you're doing wrong. Before then, you were aware, unaware of that, and yeah. it's like, oh, I'm so much worse now. And
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but eventually, you can get to that point where you become unconsciously competent. Yeah, yeah. Which that's like whatever. That's the highest level of the flow state or something. Yeah, and you see that with people. You see it with like in like spirituality and stuff. Like I always get pretty diverted away from folks when they're like very obviously use spiritual jargon and all that because from my sense which doesn't need to be accurate but it feels like as opposed to just being those things they're kind of actively projecting it, putting it mm. out there and all that yeah and i what i perceive is it's like there's another level where you just don't even need the words anymore you just you just live your life in such a way that that's the way it goes.
0: Well, I think projecting is a good way of saying that there's a lot of just what happens and a lot of what's going on is... Um, you ever read The Elephant in the Brain? No. Fascinating book. So he talks a lot about how the, the cognitive subconscious, you know, all the stuff like below the surface, how all that is doing things toward our benefit, but in many ways it's actively manipulating us. It's, hmm. it's tricking us. It's deceiving us. It's framing things in ways to where we come off for example, like if someone were being altruistic, you know, they, if there were a perfect lie detector test and you asked someone who made some large donation, they could probably pass that, that they were really concerned about the children or whatever the cause was. But the argument was that if you look at things in, in perspectives to where you could differentiate someone's motives, the deeper parts of the mind are having us do things in ways that come off socially positive and having us genuinely believe in that. You know, If we didn't, it wouldn't be effective. So, in so many ways, it's behind the scenes playing on these strings and causing us to project or manifest or do things in ways to have various social agenda goals. Yeah. But we're oblivious and we're, we're genuine. You know, we're really doing what we're doing. But parts of our mind are studying these agendas. Hmm. <laughs> when are, they argue that consciousness has all these disparate loci. That there's, not, there's not one anatomic spot. There's not even like one subjective portion of that, like at a given point in time, you know, we've got this sensation of awareness behind the eyes or we want to think about. Well, many argue that there could be any number of disparate sensations just like that, that don't have the steering wheel, you know, that are perceiving through your eyes and experiencing your experience, but are not so much actively in control. So we've got all these fractal portions of ourselves that are you know, we always talk about being at odds with ourselves or being in two minds over things. And those are quite literal scenarios.
1: Yeah. Have you heard the Bill Hicks quote it says something something along the lines of uh, "But we're all one interconnected consciousness experience and experiencing itself subjectively.
0: Yeah. And and a neurologic facet too is that we're more than one. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're not so much even an entity in that sense, but more so like a Congress, you know, with various sides and factions and majorities and minorities and debates and it's (laughs) yeah how do
1: you get into all this stuff because you have you you seem like you have a really uh like your depth goes in a lot of different directions
0: you know um I don't know I've always just been really curious and my my first focus in school uh along the way was philosophy and religious studies I struggled with a lot of the biggest questions wanted to make sense out of those and always been a seeker of sorts and you know trying to sort things out and Hmm. yeah
1: and then, what about the the medical stuff?
0: The medical stuff, you know, that was selfish reasons. That was I was a I was a miserable fat kid. I was um, like suicidal and upset and like super embarrassed about having oh, wow. boobs at twelve, thirteen year old. I think the biggest ones in the class. You know, it was um, and having like zero physical capacity whatsoever, like not being able to do any sports. Wow. You know, it, it, it. I was a I was a nerdy smart kid, and I was indifferent to anything else until I was an adolescent, and that's when like oh wow like. Other people are relevant, and the social world is relevant. Like, got it. And I'm, <laughs> This is not working out. Yeah. So, yeah, that made me want to put down some of the astrophysics books and look at health books and try to figure this out a little more. And
1: What, what, what needed figuring?
0: Um, weight and movement, you know, and they, they went together for me. I had horrible coordination. Um, you know, tiller like on a farm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so... That's how mom described my legs, and I'd try to run, I'd just go <laughs> off to the sides, and right. And, and before, before I started school, I didn't. I wasn't around a lot of other kids, uh, and I would just run around and play, have fun, and I thought I was just great, and I was moving well, and and then I got in school and saw no, not so much. That other kids would we'd go on the blacktop and run down and back, and second to last kid would finish, and like, who knows how much longer I'd finally come waddling in, and yeah, so. I just i i had to change that it really
1: what about the hormonal stuff and the adrenal stuff and thyroid stuff and all that
0: yeah so what happened there was my my biggest experience was around my weight and the fatigue and just the the difficulty of the movement and chronic pain patterns and i had a sense about lifestyle being able to help with that um sometimes much better than others and then of course you know the ton of perspiration to go with that ounce of inspiration you know things over time and. But then in medical school, there was all these divergent worlds around thyroid um, thyroid disease. So the normal conventional world was that, you know, almost no one has it, we've got one medication, we've got this broad normal range and that's all there is to it. There's like no other nuance to it. And then the alternative world was that, oh, everyone has this, you should take a ton of medication and until finally things get better. And yeah, I, what, I, what I connected with was I saw that people who were really struggling with hypothyroidism they had had a lot of the same things that I had had but I knew that lifestyle alone wasn't going to cut it for them that they had some some big chemical regulators um, microscopic stuff you know like a tenth of a microgram you couldn't see it and if that was gone you'd die in like three weeks you know and if that was two micrograms you die in a couple of weeks from your heart giving out it's like super exacting <laughs> and people could do their best through lifestyle but that alone wouldn't do it so it became just a real enigma for me and I would see the alternative approaches working sometimes, but also like really striking out a lot. And my goal was to figure out what were the valid points the conventional world was missing, and how to incorporate that in a way that was just you know better evidence led and more effective and safe for people. And and that just and, and the world of hormones in general fascinated me. Just the, just how these microscopic regulators just control things. I really saw them as the. The, the linchpin between lifestyle and pathology, you know where our habits affect our, our disease, you know, hormones are at that intersection.
1: So where, what are some of the microscopic regulators that people are maybe missing in day-to-day life?
0: Well, so I guess I wouldn't say missing per se, but our, our bodies are always trying to adapt, and there's, there's three main ways hormones get disrupted. So one of which is just out and out disease states. So like with thyroid disease, the main thing is that, You've got this factory that makes parts that your body needs, and the factory gets bombed. You know, the factory's damaged. There's autoimmune disease. The gland loses the colloids that form hormone, and you can't get enough. So that's just a disease process. Then you've also got the aging cycles. So funny thing, but above the waist, hormones are protein-based peptides. Below the waist, hormones are steroids. They're all things that are built out of cholesterol. So below the waist, we think about a lot of the hormones of age. And with that, the idea is that you know, we're incentivized to, to be healthy, to be robust, to have children. But after that, we're incentivized to take it out of the way. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're, we're a liability taking the bananas from the other monkeys past the point of reproduction. <laughs> mm. So a lot of the genetics of aging are not how do we help our genes, it's how do we stop our genes from killing us. And one way they do that is by plummeting a lot of these reparative hormones. So that's, that's one reason hormones go wrong. The second one is just they're meant to. It's like planned obsolescence. And then the third one is just adapting to dysfunctional states. So adrenal fatigue gets thrown around a lot and and horribly misused. It's a complete misnomer. But there is a such thing as dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And that's a stronger predictor of death than smoking status is according to some studies. It's a huge thing. And it's not something that's broken. It's not that the glands are fatigued. It's not that they cannot make hormone. That does happen in a rare case called Addison's disease, but in the much more common scenario, our bodies are trying to juggle and adapt to a weird environment we've put them in, in terms of our habits and our food and our timing. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Where does movement come into the whole HPA access stuff?
0: Um, you know, I think it's front and center for a lot. Um, one, one analogy I think quite a bit about is, we talk about fight or flight, you know, and everyone gets that concept, and the part they don't think about is that, Moving out of that occurs after you fight or flight, you after you do something physical. Yeah. And the pitfall in the or water, freeze. Or freeze, sure. There's there's another F for reproduction, and there's another F for famine. <laughs>
1: right.
0: Good point. <laughs> That's good. So you got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, in the absence, though, of some physical outlet, some physical manifestation, our bodies don't get that it's over. Our bodies don't get the stress ever stopped. Yeah. And so. Even when we do resolve things, we often resolve them by, we, we write a check, or we send off an email, or we get some good correspondence, or we, we do something non-physical, and we seemingly fix that trigger of the stress response, but our body never got that message. Mm-hmm. So that's where, that's where movement is essential. Yeah. That's a chance to, to tell your body, hey, look, it's okay now. You know, we, We've moved, we've moved through that. And, yeah, <laughs>
1: you've, you've probably read uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, Robert's Pulse. Yeah, You're yeah, yeah. I familiar with it. Work. Yeah, His super latest good. book was awesome. Yeah. Um, which one's latest? He's got Primates, Renbar, Behave. I haven't read Behave that one yet. incredible. Okay, well, that's on, the, that's, in that's on the list. all
0: things that affect our human behavior. Yeah, uh, he's yeah. He's pretty unusual. He spent about half of his life in Kenya with monkeys and the other half in a lab dissecting human brains. So he's really got like the behavioral side of primatology, which is us, you know, 99%. And then the whole neurobiological side of it and it's tied that together real well
1: yeah but in relation to zebras, it's interesting if you see you know a a zebra or some some critter getting hunted by a lion in that in that instance if they get away they end up going through this kind of convulsory kind of release thing afterwards Where they kind of like you could see them shaking it off
0: they go deep parasympathetic yeah (laughs)
1: yeah you know and they'll find a shady spot and they'll kind of just whoa you know, (laughs) flush. Or you're talking about like getting, getting, getting well, getting healed, like purging, you know, how different cultures are used. Like, yeah, purge, like purge, (laughs) you know, and, and in Western culture, purging is like, it's, it's like an embarrassment. You know, if you slip down some stairs or something, or you won't, you fall off your bike, You're you're not thinking about having some some release in the street. You're thinking about, (laughs) oh, my God, that was embarrassing. I I need to go back to normal (laughs) as soon as I possibly can and stuff that shit down. (laughs) It's it's interesting when you actually see the movement of the zebra moving themselves back into health. (sighs) I wonder if there's some type of really strong missing link in our culture with that.
0: Well, I I think we're... So stress is a term that we often refer to in discussion to psychosocial stress. You know, the boss is a jerk, traffic was bad, my spouse doesn't hear me. You know, those are those are real stress. Yeah. But collectively, stress also is eating and sleeping at times we're not used to, or eating food that disrupts our blood sugar, or being exposed to chemicals that change how our liver processes our stress hormones. These things all collectively add to that. And in the absence of some brisk, intense physical reset, like, you know, from good, regular, intense movement, we don't move out of that zone. We can stay stuck in that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Tell me about this new book, The Metabolism Reset Diet. <laughs> I'm really excited to get into this guy. Normally, I love to get to, I did, this one was, this is fresh off the presses.
0: It is. So I'm excited about this. You know, I've, I've seen that the people I've spoken to, the two core issues that come up are always about struggles with weight and struggles with energy. And I argue that, you know, they're, they're tied together. You know, weight is un, untapped energy. You know, it's energy you couldn't really get to and couldn't use properly, hmm. and I argue too that it's really about how the liver's working, and you know, that's like the core issue behind a lot of that. Hmm. You know, the the word itself is from the word "live," and hepatico was a Greek word for life and vitality, and like hepatitis and all that. So, many early cultures saw this. What we think now it's like the heart of the brain. Many early cultures saw all that stuff as the liver, as like the seat of experience. And, wow, and it's pretty wild. Our, our blood, our blood is carrying hundreds and hundreds of nutrients and amino acids and small hormone derivatives. And at every given moment, your liver is keeping that just spot on. And our, our fuel needs, you know, we, we eat X number of times a day, however often, but we don't eat constantly and we burn fuel constantly. So a healthy liver stores that extra and it's got two ways that it does that, glycogen and triglyceride. And then between meals, it doles out what it's, been, what it's held on to. So we we all do that, but somewhere along the way, we don't do that as well. And that's when every bite of food becomes stock weight. And every time that we have a gap between meals or we push ourselves a bit, we're exhausted and we get famished, we get odd food cravings. So that's all stuff that we've come to think is normal and you've got to fight through but it means something's wrong. <laughs>
1: yeah. Have you thought in, at all to like the whole, all the, the ideas of like emotions being stored in different livers or in different organs, like sure, the liver, sure. is like fear and anger. Yeah. The Chinese
0: have talked quite a bit about that. Yeah.
1: Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I do. And it's funny. I think that everything that we interact with and in that we experience in the world has an internal side an experiential side, and it has a physical side. And I think we can't really separate those. So, You know, you could talk about the liver and how it activates and converts neurotransmitters. You know, most of what we use in our brain, our gut makes and our liver processes, our liver gets ready for it. And so if that's not working properly, the Chinese talk about liver stagnation being the source of anger, upset, or, or fear as well. And there are a lot of ways in which we're not properly mobilizing serotonin precursors or in which our blood sugars off or in which we're making more cortisone into cortisol we're heightening our stress hormones so there are chemical correlates and then there's this experiential side of what is what does that mean like you know you've got you've got a, a the book of uh, hamlet and you can talk about the molecules of that but nowhere through analysis can you really get the story without going into that mm. so the same thing in terms of the neurochemistry but then the subjective state so there's always those two sides And yeah, there's chemical reasons by which changes in liver function affect our mood state and our focus.
1: Yeah. I'm always wondering about the different, you know, it's like all roads lead to Rome. Like I'm wondering of all the different paths into creating this outcome. We can find that, oh, through nutrition or through uh, some type of therapeutic thing, or you know, we find like, oh, that worked. And then we can become dogmatic of like, okay, that's the path. We nailed it.
0: Well, so there's two parts of that. There's, there's that worked. And then there's why that worked. Yeah. And. I do my best to stay anchored and that worked, you know, and more so the empirical side, not the <laughs> right. theoretical side. Because yeah. the why it worked, it's always a just-so story based upon our current models of chemistry and understanding. And and they evolve, you know, so we know we know outcomes and they're valid. But then we always spin stories on, well, here's what happened and here's the, here's the mechanism behind that. And then we get so wrapped up in mechanisms, so we start thinking about, Parts of the diet being good or bad based upon mechanistic understandings or upon food constituents being harmful or toxic based upon mechanistic understandings. And yeah, it's really put much more weight into to outcomes than just the, the, the reasons behind it because the reasons always come and go. <laughs> is
1: there such a thing as having liver dysfunction without having a, a, f- a full body dysfunction? Is there any isolation with huh. such a thing?
0: Well, not isolation per se, but liver dysfunction is way more common than people realize. So there's there's fatty liver syndrome and that's something that's defined as your liver being more than 5% fat by weight and it's a slipping slope between that and then cells getting stuck together and then steatohepatitis, hepatocellular carcinomas and then frank cirrhosis and liver failure. Now all diseases we always draw a line somewhere like that 5% that I threw out but at the end of the day the lines become arbitrary. You know like you know this if someone's Blood sugar is 127 when they wake up, they're diabetic. Well, if they're 126, they're not that radically better. Right. <laughs> you know, they're pretty darn close. Yeah. And so fatty liver, the tough thing about it is that there's a lot of tests that can sometimes show it, but there's no tests that easily rule it out. You know, so you could be, I saw a mountain lion somewhere over here on the sign. So you could be in the woods and say, oh, I saw a mountain lion. I know we've got mountain lions here. But how do you know there's no mountain lions in the woods? You know, how do you rule that out? burn the woods. I don't know. It's not easy. And same thing for a lot of diseases. So with fatty liver, the only rule out is biopsy. And you never do that for a screening test. But the one exception is healthy people that want to donate liver tissue to a loved one. So in that circumstance, if someone has, has no signs of liver disease, they're on no liver worrisome medications, they've got good blood sugar, they're, they're not overweight, and they want to donate liver tissue... They'll check their blood levels for liver function. They'll do an ultrasound. Last step, if they passed all the hoops, they get a biopsy. And in that exact circumstance, 40.2% of the adults who submit to biopsy cannot give liver tissue because they've got fatty liver disease. Mm. So it's that common in healthy populations. And my argument is that you know, the liver being stuck, being too filled up with stuff, leaky liver is the emergent term for this, is that it's really a continuum. So when it's healthy, it can store fuel, but when it's unhealthy, it's leaking fuel out all the time. And yeah, everyone is getting erratic blood sugar. Honestly, the easiest first indicator is just waist to height ratio. Um, simple thing, your your belt, your the d- circumference around your belly button should be less than half of your height. And whenever it's close to that or above that, that's probably what's happening.
1: Yeah, are you familiar with uh, like the term motility, and like the the subtle motions of organs? Mm. Yeah, so so visceral manipulation. There's okay, like a, Jean Pierre Baro, Barrault Institute. They they've they got um, a lot of really great information on the actual the the mechanics of, of your organs, and so each organ has its own pattern of it's it's rotation towards the midline and then rotation away from the midline towards the midline and away from the you can literally feel it um and oftentimes what will happen people is their their organs will like seize up and they won't have that subtle motility that movement and then that's an indication of dysfunction and so you can go through with manual therapy to actually kind of like reboot kind of like you're you're like jump starting a motorcycle Yeah, yeah, yeah. like oh the engine's (laughs) down on on the liver (laughs) You you can come through there and start to open up break up some of those adhesions and kind of like communicate movement back into that, that organ. And then it starts to come back and, and respirate, you know, breathe and function. And uh, in in relation to like measurements and such and what's happening, I'm just always like, I think if the person was able to just go through and do things like climb or dance or sexuality, things where you're shaking your stuff up, squatting all the way down, it kind of, from my sense, it starts to kind of jumpstart those organs to allow it to move and purge that old stuff out. Yeah. Is that crazy?
0: No. <laughs> <All good. laughs> well, there's tons of variation in in how organs sit relative to each other and their size, their proximity, their vasculature. They're all so different. When you dissect a lot of people, you see those radical differences. And yeah. We do know, too, when you're looking and when you're imaging in real time, like ultrasound, yeah, you see things moving in ways. And I wasn't aware of there being more to that than just observing it. But no, that that makes yeah. sense. All-
1: you, you know the book Biochemical Individuality? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Williams. Yeah, I have it sitting it's sitting right over here somewhere. But that gets into all the different, it's interesting how many different shapes of the liver and the stomach. And, you know, we, I think we become attached to, like, this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And then sometimes it's like feeling a sense into like your individuality I think is really valuable as well. Mm-hmm. And we can get stuck comparing ourselves to some other other thing and then we have this new kind of like syndrome around trying to be that thing. Right. And kind of start to create. <laughs> so how do people how do people look into what's happening in their own self with in, in relation to liver function?
0: Well, a couple of things. Um easy thing I mentioned about was the waist circumference relative to height. The other thing is um, everyone who has had blood tests, they always get a chemistry panel done. And part of that is the ALT, alanine transaminase. That's a liver enzyme. And so all the cells, cool things that every cell in the body dies and gets replaced. So we're always like regenerating constantly. And liver cells are fast on that. So when we see ALT in the bloodstream, that's a marker of how fast liver cells are dying to make room for new ones. And some is normal. The part that's a huge disconnect is that every liver specialist agrees that in the normal range, you could be in the middle of it and be at a, at a risky state. So in terms of numbers, if you're a woman, if your ALT is above 19, something's wrong with your liver. Hmm. And it could be any number of factors, but barring some of the more obvious ones, it often is fatty liver. And the, the disconnect is that most labs say you're normal up to mid 40s or low 60s, so you can be center of normal and that's actually a red flag for someone who knows to look for that wow. guys we got leeway up to about 30 but women is probably about 19 so like every blood test has that and you'd be amazed how many people have never even thought about that but they're they're not healthy based on that metric
1: mmm is there some, so we just put, I don't think we put St. John's wort in our, in our <laughs> cocktail. What the heck do we put in this cocktail? We you know more shaga. about the cocktail. You know more about my beverages than I do. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Granted, I don't really know a lot about it at all, but you know a lot. <laughs> what do we, we put chaga and we put
0: chaga. We got, got scutellaria. Yeah. We also had some, I think it was red raspberry I ended up throwing in or. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. What about St. John's wort and things like that? Are there some herbs or some tinctures and things that people can be.
0: You know, funny thing, I don't think about things as good or bad, but it's always about dosages and right. the common dosages yield toward or untoward effects. In St. John's order, hypericum, it's something that, you know, it's not arsenic by any means, but as, as regular, regular ingestion of it, it can speed up one part of your liver function. Mm. So your liver is always getting rid of things and converting things. And I think about it like you got the the seven dwarfs down in the mine and they're mining and they're picking the stuff off the wall. And so there's getting the stuff loose. That's phase one. You're taking toxins and you're mobilizing them. And you're also chemically activating them so they're more volatile. Then the second step is you're packaging that stuff so it can be safely taken out of the body. That's mostly conjugation with amino acids or other internal antioxidants. And the pitfall is that a lot of things we deal with in the modern world ramp up phase one, but do nothing to phase two or suppress it. And so, yeah, I, I don't do St. John's Word as a on a regular basis. It's a phase one inducer. It speeds that up quite a bit. And
1: yeah. When you you said you were you were suicidal. Well, as for that, a as little a while
0: during adolescence, yeah. When just the despair of of weight and the struggle without, and yeah, well, yeah, I hit that point. And
1: how was that? How is that? how did you how did you navigate away from that?
0: Um. Honestly, I think a lot of it was just luck and circumstance. You know, I ended up. In the moment, uh, choosing not to go that direction for reasons that could have been just cowardice or something else—I don't think it was any noble aspirations—but uh, and then in finding just finding ways to change my health and being compelled to do so, it gave me a new thing to obsess on and focus on. And, mm. Yeah, but it was—but it really left me just understanding about you know how how much your body's function can make you have a good time or not, you know, whether you're enjoying life and socially comfortable and feeling fulfilled or all the exact opposite of that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, you know, the most basic stuff, if that's not working, nothing else really matters.
1: Then there's fecal transplants. (laughs) (laughs) Screw Maslow. (laughs) Do you think that there's some bacterial component to one's depression that could be ameliorated via, you know, uphill? Well, the,
0: the funny thing is that I would argue that who we are, what we do at any given moment is probably a function. Honestly, if we had the data and we had the means to track all this, we could go back to the first 10 to the minus 36 second after the Big Bang and, and predict all of it. You know, if we, if we knew every single variable, it's almost like we've got a recipe. And we don't know the variables. We can't control all of them, but they're there. And... If, if you could predict all the factors behind that, you could predict the things we would do. You know, when I, when I find, you know, I think about yeah. people that I would disagree with, the people that would do things that I would consider wrong. You know, it's, I think there's a valid role, of course, for trying to stop behavior that's just disruptive to society. And even like when I think about health experts that I argue with, you know, if I were in their spot and I had all of their training and their experience, I would do the exact same thing. And so I think if we could take any person where they were as a snapshot, and pull together their their brain, their genetics, their experience, you know, all that stuff. Some Somewhere along the way, if you include enough, you've got to make those things happen as they do.
1: You know? mm. <laughs> yeah, the whole idea like the future algorithms will be, can predict our choices and our beliefs and our well, wants and needs better than we can.
0: Well, I don't know if we could, maybe, I'm sure we can get better that we can get closer to that. But I guess the big thing that opens up for me is just the idea about... Um, blame or shame or pride seem just to not make sense you know they' you know, what we do good or bad is is really a function of these these factors and and yes we can control and change them and we should and we should try to influence people towards things that are supportive of others and supportive of connection to community but you know doing something well is a, a function of traits that we didn't control you know I I read early long in life well I had I had seizures and I could read really early long and my seizure didn't come out from moral deficit and my ability to read if it were genetic or whatever, I didn't choose that. You know, I didn't, it wasn't through my merit that that happened to me. So I have no pride to take for that. And I have no shame to take for things that have gone wrong. I didn't choose those things, but there they were. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You would have to infuse all these uh, ideas into patience, whether you realize it or not. Like you're, you're like, you seem to me like a, Proper therapist. <laughs> I don't think you would ever put that title, but I'd imagine people when they're when they're working with you inevitably get into how they're they're feeling beyond just like give me this dietary change.
0: You know, and part of it too is that when someone is working with a health practitioner or they're they're reading things, they're listening to someone's podcast, whatever it is. You know, we we don't have a lot of sacred spaces in our culture. We don't yeah. really have a lot of places to where we understand that this is now ritualized, this is meant to induce some change, this is for a purpose. But a lot of those encounters, they take that on. I think they fill in that space. And we go into those encounters, knowing it or not, in a place of receptiveness and plasticity. And a certain amount of it is, yeah, we can convey information, but I think the biggest thing is just conveying a sense of of connection and security. And that look, I'm I'm with you and Hmm. You know, we've been down, I, I've been down this road, others have been down this road, you know, you, you can get better and, and not even hearing that, but like really integrating it, like really hearing it at a deeper level. I think that's just a huge part of what the healing journey is about.
1: Yeah. You know, you've, you've probably heard of this, like, there's like, I don't know how many different cures for warts.
0: Yeah, 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 totally.
1: You know, and there's well a documented. term, there's a term neuroendocrine, immuno. it's a really long term. It's just immunology. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. There was, that was <laughs> it. Um, and I, I'm just very curious of how much of this. A Voltaire quote that I like is, is that the uh, paraphrase is: "is modern or medicine is the art of entertaining the patient while nature cures the disease." Yeah. And I just wonder how much of what we're doing is we're actually creating a safe space for the person to actually activate their own int- internal healing mechanisms.
0: Well, and it cuts both ways. So we have placebos, you know, things that are harmless but make us feel better. But we also have nocebos, things that are harmless but make us sick. And what I came to think of is that a lot of what I would do, I still host, I don't do direct patient care, my doctors do, but I still host retreats, which I'll see a small group of people. And I think that a big part of it is taking away the nasibic side, as much as creating a sense of security and and peace and comfort is taking away a lot of our, a lot of our fears that have been implanted that aren't necessary. Is it helping to undo a lot of that.
1: Yeah. How do you do that with people? Is language a big thing, I'd imagine? Or? It
0: is, but I guess for me, I, I've studied and I've learned about NLP or therapies along those lines, yeah. but I, I, f- I find none of those intuitive in the moment of an encounter. You know, I think <laughs> I think a lot of it is just taking some concepts that people find that are holding them back or some beliefs or fears that they have about, you know, how nightshades are going to cause autoimmune disease. So, so cool. So I'll take something like that with them and I'll walk through in some deep chemical analysis about, I understand why this concept came about, here's why, and here's the data around that. Here's what's actually happened in human studies. And so once you walk someone through and just like completely step-by-step in thorough detail and walk them out of some fears and misconceptions, you do two or three of those. And at some point, like, okay, got it. I'll, I'm good. You know, the next ones we can just knock down and not go through. I'm like, okay, we can. But
1: <laughs> yeah, how does one differentiate between how, when they're plos, placeboing themselves or noceboing themselves, or it's an actual, factual? This is just science. It's all just a mishmash, right? Well, the thing <laughs> is,
0: is that the whole, the whole N1. The, the question, the question was really well asked. How do you yourself? So in the moment, you don't. You know, and I've I've been through countless experiences personally of my own health journey of trying things that this is it, I'm on the right path, and nope, not so much. After the weeks come by and the excitement wore off, it was not helping. So you don't in the moment. Hmm. And that's why I put so much weight on good, good data and good evidence. You know, we, they've, they've shown things, for example, like, like FODMAPS diets. You know, They're super effective against IBS. But placebo diets are equally effective, as is hypnotherapy. You know, So there's, there's so many ways in which and and if we are doing something that's placebic that's helping us, that's fine. I have no objection to any of that. Mm-hmm. But what I'd love to do is figure out what really is helping so we can then build upon that and then go deeper in that and make things more effective and quicker and, and you know extend more. I, I don't want to have always just going from one fad to the next. The fads work for a while, yeah. but I want to get to things that are really happening that are more than just that. And if we can then deliver things in ways with kindness and compassion and comfort and amplify the psychosocial side of it, that's that's great. Then Yahtzee, you know, bonus on top of it. <laughs> yeah, I heard
1: um, Andrew Weil, Dr. Weil, he, he mentioned a, a thing when um, he said that it's like an old medical saying, you, you want to use the cure as much as you can before it loses its powers. <laughs> And so I think that we do that a lot. That's, again, more paraphrasing, but that's, I think that you see that when people like, like you just kind of alluded to with yourself people like change their diets and they for a short time, you're like, we did it. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how that works where it's like, yeah, if you like almost make maybe not any change, but like a wide variety of changes, like you, there's positive outcome and then it seems like lose its power.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. what the hell is that (laughs) that's placebo (laughs) and you open up up any magazine there's a drugs there's a drug advertised in there and if you read the fine print a third of the people with that condition they got better on the placebo and they've done studies one was with ibs either ibs or ibd um it was ibs in which they've used active placebos and what that means is they tell people you will get a placebo you know you are getting a pill that has no effects whatsoever but in some of these conditions, they help in a good percent of the time. And that'll work 40% of the time in some conditions. It
1: seems like through taking that, that placebo, even though you know it is, you're still taking a pill of intention, if you want to use like, you know, like New Age language. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just bringing your awareness to that thing. And now you take the pill and it's like, okay, cool, the seed's germinating.
0: Well, we call this the Hawthorne effect on medical research. And anytime something is being observed or addressed in some way, that itself changes it you know someone yeah. sees a, a trainer they see a therapist and the fact that they're interacting with someone who actually gives a damn about them and that that comes across and now they're deliberate and conscious about everything else that they do and it's shifting their selves, their, their minds and changing that hpa axis dramatically mm. so yeah it's huge
1: what are stand-up factors you see in modern culture that like low-hanging fruit that people ought to be addressing that they're maybe not
0: well <laughs> to start off at a more I guess how I define things medically, I really think that two things, and I'll define these better, but adipokines and HPA dysfunction are like pretty much all chronic disease. Mm. So there's things like if I were to leave your place and not pay attention to get hit by a truck, that's different. You know, that, that's stupid. But, but Don't plant that seed. <laughs> <laughs> You're but placebo see yourself. But everything else that goes wrong is some function of the body not being in a healthy state of security, you know, the HPA dysfunction, right. or there being these toxic cytokines coming out from triglycerides trapped in the organs. Like those two factors are the biggest drivers. And a lot of ways that people can improve those could be completely divergent. You know, I talk about fuel, for example, in the book. I don't get into, I talk about carbs and fats collectively as fuel. And down at the level of the liver, they're both burned to oxaloacetate. So are ketones, so is alcohol. So there's no, your liver can't tell the difference, really. They're, mm. all, they're all fuel in that sense. Mm. And someone could go vegan and drop their fuel intake and see health improvements someone else could chop out refined grains and drop their fuel intake and get some good health outcomes. So there's a lot of different ways you can change those. In terms of the HPA, someone could go deeper in their traditional family practice of conventional religion, and they could have security and they could have connection from that. They could be part of a community. Someone else could go deeper into the beauties of science and geek out with stuff like Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson and see how, you know, our atoms are literally blown off from second generation supernova. You know, we are physically made of star stuff. Those atoms don't form any other way, Hmm. you know, and, and, and just be amazed by the awes of hard materialistic science or someone else could see the connections that have been talked about in traditional cultures through Vedanta or a lot of modern ideas. But there's many ways you could achieve those goals, but those two things, you know, getting down that toxic fat in the organs and then fixing that HPA. So the, the toxic fat in the, the liver and pancreas, for example, so to change two grams of that, so I've got Dave stuff here. So um, the mass of that lid, if you can take that much toxic fat, half of that much toxic fat out of the pancreas, that's, that's diabetic to non-diabetic. Mm. So it's just this huge shift from that. Mm. Yeah, those two things.
1: There was a, in the in the beginning, um, you are talking about memories and consciousness and such. It's, in, it's an interesting idea that our memories. There's no one place that our memories are in the body. Yeah. you know, so in the brain, you'd think like, oh, it's in like the hippocampus or the cerebellum. <laughs> you know, but it's actually more of like this fractal, where your your whole experience is distributed throughout th- that whole system. Yeah. Do you feel like you?
0: Well, can, memories are not, not accurate. They're not, they're not right. Like a and, they're, and they're, yeah, they're,
1: they're, they're recreations. Yeah, what the hell is a memory in the first place? God dang it. <laughs> Do you feel like you can heal yourself through education?
0: For sure. Yeah. You can have understandings, perspectives. I think ultimately there's some mixture of you know, things that come into us and things that come out of us and we've got to have those things balanced. Uh, we talked a bit before about the you know feeding feeding our impressions taking in positive nourishing impressions so to speak mm. and that's that's probably biggest at our level of interactions and interacting with others having healthy connections that way and the things we take in through our senses we take in through our body but that, that's the tie and I'm uh, as a naturopathic physician we had an old phrase about the immuncctoraries, the all the organs of elimination collectively having all those things work well. So getting the right stuff coming in, having your body get the right stuff going out, and the rest sorts itself out.
1: Hmm. <laughs> what is naturopathic medicine? What does a naturopathic doctor do?
0: Pretty cool, so there's a lineage that we could trace back to Galenic Greek traditions, and it became most active in European spa medicine. So back back in, say, Germany, or even London, around these areas in the 17th century, you know, people lived were starting to live industrial lives and you know, we talk about pollution or food additives now. We've got nothing to complain about from where it was a few hundred years ago. I mean, there was literally hot cross buns were yellow from arsenic paint, mm. you know. And they would have uh, cement added in to, to raise the volume of, of dough and bread. So, I mean, we wow. we, have, we can always do better, but...
1: And the lead paint. The lead paint, completely. Well, you women know, were painting themselves white, and they so were like... all the
0: plumbing was lead-based. You know, yeah. plumbum and plumbers, they were lead workers. Yeah. And many have argued that the Greek Empire wouldn't have fallen if it weren't for lead plumbing and how that affected the leaders.
1: I heard because the waters were continually moving, it wasn't so bad, actually, compared they, to the they way that... They still that got a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But so the nature paths, they had this crazy idea that if they'd pull people out of the country, out of the city, and also restrictive clothing was normal, so yeah. take them in the countryside and have them get fresh air, good food, water, move their bodies, not wear constrictive clothing, get some sunlight, that they would get better from things, and and many did. Hmm. And they evolved to take on a lot of traditions of herbalism, you know, some involved facets of homeopathy, they would tie in things of hydrotherapy, you know, water cures, and the term itself is coined about 200 years ago. So we're, we're part of a lineage to where all along we've said there's this important part about self-care and lifestyle. You know the the caduceus, the medical staff, with the serpent? Yes, the exactly. Serpent. Yeah, so the oldest, versions, the oldest versions have two. They have two serpents. It's the same thing as like the Ida and the pinga Nadi from Ayurveda. Yeah. But, but yeah, the oldest versions have two. The modern ones have one. So the, the two serpents were uh, Panacea and Hygiea. And Panacea was... Uh, like panacea, like to write it, it to to vanquish disease. That was like the doctor riding in on the white horse and eradicating the illness or whatnot. And hygeia is hygiene, you know, that was not getting sick in the first place. That wasn't having a better antibiotic. That was not putting your your wastes in the in the river upstream. <laughs> right. And so our tradition really was the the two the two snakes. We were big on both panacea and hygeia, and along the way hygeia went more by the wayside.
1: Hmm. Where are we at modern culture with panacea and hygiene?
0: Well, <laughs> you know I hear a lot about a lot of talk about the pitfalls of conventional medicine, and I have no faults with it. It's really a matter of just um, how things have been built around just passive incentives. So the model is it evolved from battlefield medicine, and it evolved from industrial medicine. So how can you do one easy intervention that'll have one predictable result? And then how do you have that be a patentable intervention so you can justify research and development and marketing around that? And once you throw those premises in place, you've got to make synthetic drugs. And you've got to, you've got to look for conditions that a lot of people will take a lot of drugs for a lot of years. So you focus hard on lowering cholesterol, uh, lowering blood pressure, uh, managing chronic symptoms. And that's what's emerged from that. And given those premises, they've done the best they could. But the difficulty is, it's never been incentivized around what are the most effective paths to reverse these issues. It's what's the most effective way to make a pill to manage that. Yeah, and it's and honestly, as much as many health experts will like to come down on conventional medicine, it wouldn't have grown without fertile soil. You know, people wanted to have the easy solution, and pills are easy. You know, pills are simpler than doing a lot else, and pills are popular in the natural world as well. It's no not a difference that way. so yeah. it, it, it cuts both ways.
1: Yeah, all the th- like we blame. You know, a lot of the, the damage we've done, like cell phones, you're staring, you're addicted to your cell phone and your posture and all that. And then it's interesting when you look, like, well, like you are the cell phone, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you created the cell phone, humanity created it. Like it's an outcropping of, of your consciousness. Right.
0: If we weren't crazy about those things, they wouldn't be an issue.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's like, almost, it seems like relation, there's something to relationship, you know, by creating a relationship with the world around you, yeah. as opposed to like abusive relationships then all of a sudden things start to come in line. Yeah. You know, but the body, it seems like the body knows how the heck to heal. That's kind of like, like uh, a main premise of naturopathic medicine, I'd imagine, right? It's like it is, osteopathy. You know, evoking,
0: similar. The, evoking the healing power of nature. It's a big, big part of that. And
1: yeah. Yeah. What's next for you after how you're on book tour, you could say, or what's your, what's, what's happening?
0: Yeah. I'm talking a lot about the book. Um, the big focus in life is really about training the doctors and just, you know, it's a, we've got this awesome team. We've got. Half a dozen incredible doctors that are individually all all just superstars, and you know we we do a lot of management of thyroid disease, Hashimoto's and Graves primarily, but that's our big focus. Mm. So it's a it's a blast to see people that have had just decades of struggles that are sadly often unnecessary, but to see them change and transform, and and the the biggest, the most hedonistic joy, is to be the mentor behind the scenes, in all honesty, totally. and and to see someone else like. Be up there on stage and, or not, I mean, in, in a non literal sense. I but, totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the most hedonistic thing there is. <laughs> mm.
1: So, what are you instilling into people?
0: <laughs> um, Concepts, uh, but also just the sense of confidence about the body's abilities given the right circumstances right. and some, some compassion along the way. This is funny, but so many symptoms, I, this has finally clicked in my head, which much later than I wish it would have, but so many <laughs> symptoms that we have are. Nocebic fears, the opposite of placebo, you know, or they are unmanifest anxiety, and this comes about from real issues. This can be lack of connection, lack of being heard, lack of feeling really uh, fulfilled in life or whatnot, but they'll come out in in physical ways. And what I've realized is that the solution is really is not because when someone's saying, "Hey, look, I've got a belly, they've got a belly, you know you could you could document that I mean, there really is something happening there, yeah. and it's not going to be effective to come to them and say, yeah, you're being you know, a drama llama, you need to meditate and make your life right. That's, not, that's, that's so divergent. That's just a turnout. That's not effective. Mm-hmm. There's really some meta communication saying, I need validation. I need to be understood. I need someone to make sense of this and to, to, to be there for me. And, and along the way, if you do that in a way to where you're talking in terms of real biomedical science about the gut and things that can be beneficial for it, but then meet those, those, those parallel, that, that meta communication you know, that's where healing comes in from.
1: Yeah. You notice that with like self-care and movement and rehab and all that. Sometimes you finally get sick or you get like a surgery, for example, that forces you to rest, you know, but let the surgery thing go. Just you get sick, you have to rest. And then all of a sudden, you feel better than you ever have the knee pain, the whatever thing. It's just like, Oh, I just, and I gave myself the permission, like, I'm not going to work. I'm, I'm taking off work for a whole week. <laughs> you know, you give yourself that permission to just take care. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Whoa, like six years of crossfitting myself into what, and, and mobilizing and hip joint distracting and all that. Yeah. And, That five days of just chilling the freak out and taking care.
0: Well, and also letting yourself be passive, letting yourself be a recipient of of care and aid when it's when it's mandatory.
1: Yeah. Receiving. Yeah. Yeah. Being open to that. That's a real I think a lot of like caretakers are it's that's really challenging for them, especially Mm -hmm. like I take care of you. Yeah. But being able to actually like be the person that's receiving the care is really challenging. It seems like it's like a real art to be able to receive, I think. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, cool, man. Um, you got to go, you got other places to, to rally off into what, what time were we at? Quarter after. Yeah. We should probably wrap this thing up. Um, you're great, man. (laughs) I really, I really appreciate your (laughs) mind. I'd love to like, like, like bathe in that thing a little bit more. I got to read, I got to read the metabolism reset diet. Yeah. I'll
0: get get all the books uh, sent out for you.
1: Yeah, please. I can't wait. Um, any other standout points with the metabolism reset diet, well, repair the, the, your the, liver, stop storing fat, and lose weight naturally. I guess the other big thing I that
0: Method love people to hear is that if they've struggled with weight, I think more about waste as being important than weight. The pounds and the scale, you know, are not the strongest predictors of things, but waste waste matters. A paper yeah. just a couple days ago showed that your waste is inversely related to your brain size as you yep. age. Like just hard data around that. So and the main point is that you shouldn't have to live your life on a diet. You know, if you're in a place to where the way that eating per your appetite doesn't really yield a healthy waste or healthy energy, that means something is wrong. It doesn't mean you're not suffering hard enough. It means something's not working right. And when that thing starts working right again, you can reach a place to where you can eat per your appetite and mostly eat good food. Most people know what to do all that, that way already, but it's not working well enough for them. Mm. So I love it that the body can change and move back to where it effortlessly keeps that in line again.
1: Mm. Awesome. Uh, What's the best direction to point people? Where should people go from here? Learn more.
0: You know, drchristiansen.com. You can spell it wrong. It'll still find its way there, drchristiansen.com.
1: Cool. And then your last book, New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Dream reset. Yeah. Dr. Christensen, sin <laughs> bad mofo. Um, all right. Thanks so much, man. I really Dude, appreciate that. Yeah, I love it. All right. Um, highly recommend people checking out the metabolism reset diet. Um, even though I actually, honestly, I haven't read it yet, but it looks really good and I'm quite enjoying <laughs> this dude's mind. All right. Over now. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much for tuning in that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, we got a couple things to help support that body of yours, one of which is the Align band that people have been really loving, which I'm super grateful for. Um, it is a heavy-duty resistance band. comes along with a door anchor, traveling case, and then an online video guide on how to use that thing. It's my absolute go-to travel tool. I've got it hanging literally from my door right beside me now. Um, use it regularly. Use it with clients. Uh, it can be found at alignpodcast.com slash gear uh, on Amazon, and you can also find it. Align Band on Instagram. Um, also, we finally did it. We created the Align Method online program, which focuses on unwinding the patterns of staring into technology. Essentially, so forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, rolled forward spine, kind of like just that hunchy posture thing that um modern world is is stricken by uh gets into how to align your physical body so self-care joint by joint from ankle to knee to hip to spine to head to neck etc really good stuff also gets into lifestyle um, gets into morning routines nighttime routines how to effectively handstand how to move on the ground Um, people have been loving that. Thank you all for grabbing it, the ones that have. And if people have any questions about that, you can reach out at Align Podcast on Instagram. I'm happy to support. All right, thank you guys. Enjoy your day. Thanks for joining you. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for reviews on iTunes. That's it. Pow.